I'm thinking director. Yep, that's what I want to do. How much does a producer make? Did you go to school? What did you study? What's the best part about your job? How do I get in? Who do I need to know? Welcome to 101, a podcast for young women interested in careers in film and TV. We'll sit down with industry professionals, ask them your questions, and get the answers you need to know. 101. It's It's a beginning. beginning. We are here today with Matt Selkirk, DIT and cinematographer, and we will learn all the ins and outs of both worlds. Welcome to 101. Glad to see you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do it. I know, you know, I don't know if our listeners know, but we, you know, we are constantly, you know, in touch with different people and scheduling and working around people's schedules and lives and jobs and kids and everything. And um, I think we had a couple false starts in the past couple months with Matt. We came dangerously close a few times. uh, Meredith, I'm going to let you take the first question because my dog is barking. (laughs) Oh, Dobby. So Matt, what do you do and how do you define your role? I primarily on set, I'm a digital imaging technician. I handled like the onset color and workflow uh, to describe it to people who have no idea what I'm talking about. I, I tell people that I'm the Instagram filter of film. And if you tell any DIT that, they're incredibly offended. <laughs> mm-hmm, I can imagine. Um, but yeah, but I work with the DP to kind of help set the look and the feel of, of what our show will eventually be. Nice. Um, can you sort of explain what happens to the footage after it's been shot? Like, what is the process for the footage? I know that uh, as a DIT, you sometimes deal with, with the workflow that way. Yeah, so most jobs at this point shoot uh, some version of raw or log. Basically, they're the same thing, which is they are a flat, uncontrasty, uncolored version of the film. That is what's being captured by all the cameras. And then you get to choose what your contrast levels, what your colors are going to be, how you want to kind of shape that uh, into a look. And that's kind of what I do, where I add the contrast, the color, the gamma, all that stuff to kind of give us what, you know, our film stock, if you will. And so that's kind of what my cart does is, you know, I make you know, a thousand film stocks or whatever it is. On a normal movie back when we did film, you'd have four, five, six film stocks at some times. And, you know, this card allows you to have an unlimited amount, which is great, but also can be very uh, daunting. I'm going to be the person that asks you to kind of break it down for listeners who are just brand new to this world. Can you kind of break it down even further? Like, so they're they're filming and you know in a really basic explanation like can you tell me a little bit more about what that process is so i take a signal from the camera so i i get the image from the camera as we're doing it so everything that i'm doing all that coloring all the matching of lenses and stuff like that is done in real time but prior to that we usually have some kind of prep or hair makeup test or a series of both of those depending on the size and scale of the job that we kind of determine what our, you know, what our film stocks would be. And then that kind of lays the base for what we're going to do. So there's some kind of consistency between shot to shot, scene to scene. And then, uh, and then from there, we can kind of make adjustments and set our kind of stylistic goals, if you will. The stock, is that different than a LUT? No, no, no. I, it's just a different way of phrasing it. Um, cool. 
you know, because in, you know, back in the day, because I started like 15, 16 years ago, um, back when I love your cup, by the way, uh, <laughs> um, 15, 16 years ago. So I kind of caught the tail end of film back when I was an assistant before I became a DIT. And then, you know, you chose your film stocks, your, you know, 5201, 5205, 5219 or whatever. Um, and so I tend to think of LUTs in that fashion where it's like not that you're necessarily trying to mimic something all the time but yeah um i find that describing them in that way to directors of photography and cinematographers and people since most of the older guys came out of that world that's the way that they instantly know what i'm talking about because if you yeah. get in the rabbit hole of like cube files and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 3DLs and, and stuff. <laughs> Everybody gets lost really quick, even though you're basically talking about the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on a project right now with uh, four cameras and uh, I'm just so sick of looking at this flat, flat image. <laughs> you know, I really need some sort of LUT to put on, but I uh, haven't gotten that information yet. So oh, no. <laughs> it will happen soon. But yeah, but I find it, I mean, I find it really fun. I became a DIT because of that interaction, like being able to sit down with DPs and figure out what their idea of contrast and color, what they like and don't like, because I've noticed that all of us, though we think we see the world the same, every one of us sees it just slightly differently. So like, that's kind of like the, the fun part of the beginning of my job is figuring out like how you see the world. And then figuring out what my version of that is so that I can match it. But like, for instance, I did that movie, The Irishman, with the brilliant Rodrigo Prieto. And uh, he just sees the world greener than the rest of us. And so he adds a ton of magenta, or what I think is a ton of magenta, to everything. So every time I went to match something, I would match it to what I wanted. Then I'd add like a point of magenta. And, uh, and usually that was kind of in the ballpark. <laughs> but to me, the screen always looked too, too magenta. It always looked a little weird. But as long as I made it the same weird, it worked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very cool. It's cool to think of people seeing the world a little greener. Um, yeah. <laughs> you just briefly mentioned, you know, why you like what you do. But was there a moment that you knew this was what you wanted to do? I mean, I kind of always... I think like every kid, I kind of always was like, oh, movies seem really cool. Like, would it be fun to do that? I, I don't know. I was a weird kid. I like my favorite movie even now is Back to the Future. And, uh, and I always wanted to be Michael J. Fox, not necessarily really <laughs> the actor, but like him as a person, he seemed like had a really interesting life. And, uh, and that kind of got me interested in like entertainment in general. And then the uh, I had a summer job for like five or six years in working at a performing arts center. So I saw like 50 shows a year and stuff. And I kind of thought I would do that until I realized they don't make any money. And then I was right on the edge of getting my teaching degree. And I, I had a conversation with my mom who was like, this doesn't really seem like something you're emotionally invested in. What would like in a perfect world, what would you do? It's like, I'd go make movies. And my mom is amazing was like you should go do that oh <laughs> mom um, and so I went and yeah I went to film school um which was great uh and they teach you a lot about you know like what you think you want to do they give you no practical skills to get a job but <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
but like I knew like what I thought cinematography was and stuff. And I got really lucky. Like I, on graduation day, I sent out an email to the handful of people who I knew who were working. That was just like, how did you do this? Cause they didn't explain that part. And one of them said, hey, you know, can you be here tomorrow? Uh, and I've wow. worked in the business for 15 years since. That's uh, incredible. I was literally like climbing the stairs to get my diploma on my cell phone being like, I promise I'll be there tomorrow, but I gotta get off the phone. I'll explain. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, and then I was a camera assistant. I was, you know, I was a loader and, uh, and a second, and then a first for the shortest amount of time you've ever seen. And then a DIT, but I, uh, I've been incredibly lucky. Like I did very few non-union things. When I was a loader, I loaded on uh, Law and Order and it was a fairly broken set. Like it was a little soul crushing. Nobody got along. It was, it was the saddest version of film. <laughs> And, uh, and when that looked like it was getting canceled, I literally did what everybody tells you not to do. And I cold called every single assistant in New York and was like, hey, you know, I know you got a guy, but if that guy's busy and the guy after that on your list is busy, give me a buzz. Uh, and one of those guys said, hey, can you come in tomorrow? And that guy uh, was a DIT and he happened to be on like the biggest show in New York. And I met the nicest guys in New York. And they hired me kind of up until now. <laughs> I feel like there are certain skill sets in film that, that apply really well from certain jobs and not others. So like loading, you have to be very type A for it. You have to be incredibly organized. You have to, you know, and, uh, and I'm really good at that. And then like seconding, like I, I was an amazing loader and I was a fine second because <laughs> uh, seconding is a lot of like people management and stuff and I just wasn't as good at that at the time and so I loaded in the DIT that I worked with was starting a company and said hey do you want to you know would you like to do this and I always wanted to be a cinematographer I figured the best way to do that was be to sit next to the guys who make all the choices and so that's what I do and I get to steal all their ideas and have like amazing conversations with brilliant DPs that I really admire and that I would never probably get to talk to if I wasn't doing this job. I feel like you've covered like most of our questions. So thank you so much. No, I'm just kidding. All right, this was great. <laughs> I'm like glancing I, down at my list of questions. You tell me to stop talking. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, we did that one. Nope, we did that one. Oh, this is all about you. This is this yeah. is amazing. Oh, no, it's great. And <laughs> it's, it's incredibly a... weird because I generally am not like a chatty person. Yeah. And so I'm uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to stop. No, I mean, <laughs> it's wonderful because you've covered so many of the things. Uh, you went to film school. And I know you said like you did what they tell you not to do um, by calling people and saying, hey, this is what's up. Like. But can you talk a little bit more about that? Like you're, you said that your first union gig was Law and Order and, you know, you, you got your first job by calling people. Tell us about that, you know, the things that you're not supposed to do, but sometimes it's okay to do. Um, I mean, the calling people, it, it's gotten less of a, of a thing now, you know, because everybody has cell phones and that's kind of how you communicate and stuff. But 15 years ago, nobody did. 
And it was considered kind of weird to just like randomly reach out. And I think it was also largely because of the fact that I didn't, I wasn't pushy about it. I was just kind of like, hey, you know, if everybody else is not available and you are desperate, I can do the job. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I mean, I got really lucky in the fact that the people who answered the phone were brilliant and nice. And, and I still, to this day, when I get hired, there's like a one in five chance that the first time I email you, the first email that shows up is from 15 years ago when I emailed you in, in whatever year it was. Uh, saying, hey, I really like your work. I wish we could work together. You know, if you ever have a chance, I'll buy you coffee. <laughs> uh, it's amazing the number of DPs who have my email from so long ago <laughs> and are like, did we talk at some point? Definitely not. You ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of those DPs is a guy who I've worked with probably know, 15 times now. We've known each other for 12 years. And his name is Vanya Sternjul, and he, he did the Gilded Age, he did Crazy Rich Asians, he did Bored to Death and 30 Rock. And yeah, he first time I emailed him, he was just like, man, I, have we done this before? Definitely not, but <laughs> uh, but yeah. And he always finds it really funny. It's like, I'm usually better about helping people. I'm like, yeah, not with me. <laughs> <laughs> we stumble into each other by chance. <laughs> Hilarious. I mean, I, I think it's something that you have to do to get yourself out there um, to, to reach out to people. And I think it's it, it's the way in which you do it. And Matt, I, I think you do it with a lot of humility and humor. And, you know, well, and, and you. for our listeners, like you have to be showing that you're friendly and open and likable and, you know, are going to be an asset to the team. And, and I think, you know, from the way you've described it, if I were to get an email like that, I'd be like, yeah, I want to work with this guy yeah. <laughs> or I want to work with this woman. So I, I feel like it's it's such a, a great lesson in how to present yourself and to not be pushy, yeah. but also to say, like, I'm interested. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, I, I think the pushy part is really the thing that people worry about. But, you know, if you send one out every once in a blue moon, I mean, that's also how I became a DIT. I was an assistant for a real long time. And then one day, you know, I decided to go that direction and I emailed every single person that I had met who was a cinematographer or a cinematographer adjacent mm -hmm. and, uh, and said, hey, I'm doing this new thing. You know, if your guy's not available, uh, you know, give me a ring and maybe it'll work. And one of those guys said, yes, I did a commercial for him like the next day. Three weeks later, I was in Texas on a movie with him. And I did like four or five jobs with him before, uh, you know, before he found an L.A. D.I.T. who is also lovely. She's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, you know, but it was great. But he, you know, he got me some resume lines and he led me to other people. And, and you know, that's kind of how the whole thing works. And how did you know? Because that I think that's an important lesson for our listeners and our viewers to, to think about, like, when you were when you were an assistant, like how did you know that you were ready to make that leap and say, okay, uh, I've been doing this and now I think I need to do this? I'm not, I'm not sure you ever really are completely convinced. I mean, I at that point had been working with a, with a group of assistants that I had known for a while. Um, and one of those guys was also a DIT who I work with still now. 
And, uh, and, you know, I was the guy who, if we had a second unit and the whole thing was on fire, uh, I was the guy sent over to put the fire out. And so I wasn't really that concerned about being able to do like the, the A to B stuff of it all. My bigger concern was the fact that you're kind of, you're a bit of an island as a DAT. There's nobody there to help you. And more, it involves a lot of talking and communicating and stuff with the guy who's standing next to you. And that is not always my strong point. <laughs> a great story about that. When I was an assistant, I left Law and & Order and I went to do the biggest movie in New York, which was Smurfs, uh, <laughs> which at the time was massive. And I get through the whole job as the loader and I get to the end. Uh, and this really lovely uh, assistant, Zorn Veslik, pulled me aside and he's like a legend of the business and uh, pulled me aside at the end. I was like, you're fantastic at what you do. You know, you're going to have a long career, blah, blah, blah. You're never, ever going to be hired again. <laughs> I was like, why? It's like, you don't talk. Like, you don't talk. You're great at your job, but you don't say anything, which makes you forgettable. Like, and this business is all about not being forgettable. And I'd spent years, like, learning how to talk to people because of it. Um, wow. But it's... It's interesting because my job is also like, it really fits like this weird set of social skills, if you will, where, uh, you know, there's a whole technical side of it, which is very important, but, you know, you have to know when to be quiet and know when to, you know, when to pipe up and when, you know, when to quietly lead people to where they need to go without it being so obvious that you're doing that. You know, I spend more time with the DPs that I work with than I do with everybody else in my life. Um, and not by a little bit, by an enormous amount. Uh, and you gotta kind of figure out, you know, it's like having like a weird four month marriage three times a year. Can you map out sort of what a, a day looks like for you on set? Yeah, so, um, you know, we get in whenever we get in uh, at call. Uh, usually we unload the trucks. After that, you know, you kind of set up your cart, turn on all your programs, set up your wireless, make sure everybody's kind of has all their settings and stuff to where they need to go. You have a quick conversation with, with the DP about, you know, how do we want this to feel? The scene before this is slightly warmer. You know, do we want to stay warm? Do we want to stay cool? Do we want to, you know, do we want to do something different? Or is this kind of like the middle of the story where it's all kind of the same? After that, it's a lot of like, techie management stuff where you had, you know, you're matching lenses, you're matching exposure, you're matching uh, flare patterns and stuff if you can pull it off. Um, it's a lot of like, uh, it's a lot of babysitting all the stuff that you did in prep um, to make sure everything seems consistent. But yeah, on that, on like the day-to-day, hour-to-hour kind of thing, it's a lot of like managerial stuff where you're just kind of ticking away at buttons which is not the sexiest answer to that question. Because <laughs> my, job, my job is a little bit weird in the fact that it's like part tech, part creative and being kind of the IT guy. So when things go down, you're the guy who comes in, you know, gives it a shake. Uh, <laughs> Slam it really hard. I'm, I'm yeah, exactly. Like, you, know, you turn it on and off and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I like to describe my job kind of as being like, I should either be forgotten or saving the day. 
Yeah. Uh, and if I'm doing either of those, if I'm not doing either of those things, then I'm probably doing something wrong. <laughs> You've done a great job. I mean, this is ultimately to show our listeners that this job is even a, a possibility. Um, you've done a great job of mapping it out. I want to know, do you ever talk to post-production team about what you guys have done on set? Like, how do you streamline the workflow from production to post? Uh, I mean, it depends on the job. Um, there's usually a lot of communication with the, the lab and like the dailies people. So that's something that happens kind of consistently through the whole job, making sure that what we're doing on set matches what they're doing at the lab, which, you know, matches what you see on whatever streaming platform it is that we're using to check the dailies and the stills and all that stuff. Beyond that, it's very hit and miss. Um, there are some DPs who will connect me to the final colorist and we'll have a chat just to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page. Most final colorists don't like that because uh, they are wonderful and smart and creative in their own ways and they don't really want to just do what I did. <laughs> but others are super collaborative and like that movie, The Woman in the Window, the Amy Adams movie, Peter Doyle, who's a, who's a very famous final colorist in his own right, uh, came to set and hung out with us for two or three weeks and you know, really kind of got a sense of what we were doing and how it was going to look at set. And, you know, uh, him and the DP, Bruno uh, Demonal went through look after look after look, trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And in the, in the end, it ended up just being what we did on set. Uh, and those are always kind of the fun ones, the ones where, like, the thing that you did ends up being the thing that, that everybody sees, which I've been very lucky. I've had quite a few of them that have kind of ended up that way. That's a great segue to our next question. What is the best part about your job? I find the whole thing really fascinating. Like, not necessarily the, the tech part of my job. Like, I like that part. It really fits in the way that my brain works and stuff. But, I mean, I get a master class in cinematography every few months. Like, I find a new person who's doing a totally different thing. Like, I get to ask questions and be like, hey, why did you put you know, why did you put a 216 diffusion on this instead of a 250? Why are we using half grids than this? You know, why this set of lights instead of this set of lights? And for me, that I really love. One in every three times, one of those guys is just absolutely brilliant and lovely and smart and willing to like ask questions and have coffee and, uh, you know, and do all the things that you hope people like that will do. And, uh, and those are the fun ones where they turn around and be like, what would you do? You know, do you want nice. a real answer? Because <laughs> I would do these three things. And, and the most confident guys will usually turn around to you and go, oh, two of those are brilliant. That third one is crap. And they'll go <laughs> do the things because, you know, in the end, they get all the credit. Why wouldn't you take, you know, the best idea wins. It's cool when you find those people. Yeah, and I will say I've been very, very lucky in the fact that I have a, I have a disproportionate amount of great jobs as opposed to not great jobs, which is funny because like the, you know, the idiom in film is that like for every one job, you get three bad ones and, and I have far outpaced that, uh, that thing where I've, you know, I've had far more great jobs than bad jobs. Well, I'm going to play the, the flip side of Meredith's question. Um, what's the hardest or most difficult part of your job? <laughs> How do I say it without getting in trouble if anybody hears this? The, 
I find the most difficult part of the job is watching somebody do something wrong who is unwilling to listen. Um, and granted, most of film is subjective and stuff, but there are there are right ways to do things. There are, you know, even technically right ways to do things. And I also, I mean, kind of in that same vein is finding people who are very talented, who are not confident. They're the ones who don't, who don't listen as well, who don't collaborate as well, who like are kind of an island. And I, uh, and that can be very frustrating because you, you know, you finish every day going, oh, we didn't quite reach our potential for whatever this was. And that I find that's the thing that like eats away at me at times where it's like, oh, this could have been better. This had so much potential. This could have been something, which I don't know if that's a great answer. I mean, like technically, you know, in a technical sense, there's like, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that can be challenging, but like, I find that part to be very hard mm -hmm. where you like, you're watching the guy that you spend all this time with flounder and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that's mostly ego or is it, just fear is it a you know what do you think, I think it's it a little bit of both i mean it's especially now because the you know it's so busy out and stuff people are going from shooting shorts to shooting 50 million dollar tv shows in you know in the blink of an eye and they just don't have the years of experience that most people acquired to get from point a to point b what i find that happens is when people aren't confident in the fact that they know what they're doing or not even that they know what they're doing, but are not confident in the fact that they can be wrong. And that's okay. Hmm. They're not willing to admit that they don't know. And, uh, and that can get you in trouble. I find that it tends to come from a place of like a little bit of fear and a lack of confidence. Got it. Um, well, I mean, I think it's a real, you know, it's a real thing because it's, you know, when you're new or when you're starting something that you haven't done before or, you know, you're trying something and taking a risk doing something that nobody's ever done before. Like there's always that leap of faith and there's always that chance that you could be wrong. And, you know, destigmatizing the idea of making a wrong choice. Like, you know, I talk to my kids about it's okay to make mistakes. And, you yeah. know, I think as grownups, we're like, it's okay for kids to make mistakes, but as grownups, like, you know, <laughs> we can't make any mistakes. Um, and I, I think that the added pressure of being in a, a really fast paced environment where a lot of people are relying on one another to get the job done, I think that that adds to a lot of uh, fear around missteps. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think the money helps either when, you know, when you're spending, you know, a million dollars a day and you go, ooh, that didn't work. Uh, we got to make a different choice. So we got to do something again. Like, it, especially as a new person, it's hard to, it's hard to look people in the eye and be like, yeah, we spent a bunch of money, but it didn't work. But usually the best people are the ones who can turn around and go, I don't, you know, I don't think this is the way we should do it. Or I don't think this tells the story or I, you know, or just simply, I don't know. The best people are the ones who can look to their guys and be like, you know, you guys have way more experience than I do. Because I mean, every DP, even the best DPs are only doing two projects a year, three projects a year, unless you're doing like indie films where they're all like a month. Mm -hmm. um, but even that, you're doing maybe six. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the people who you hire 
do it 11 months out of the year, 12 months out of the year. I mean, they're, you know, with the exception of a couple of breaks here and there and like prep, you know, all your crew guys are there day in, day out, every day, no matter what. And even though they're not in your position, um, you know, they've seen a lot, way more than you're probably ever going to see at the top of the, at the top of the food chain. And they're, you know, they're great resources, even if you hate everything that they said. Um, at least you can turn around and be like, oh, well, this is how other people do it. Or this is, you know, um, you can find out the things that you don't like to do. And that at least narrows, you know, your path, and which is a very like union crew thing for me to say, to be like, man, listen to your guys. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though. I mean, you know, you don't, I remember having a conversation with, uh, with uh, the director of the OA and we were, you know, we were the tail end of the job. He was like, man, you know, I'm so excited for, to, you know, this has been so long. I think it was like seven months we had been shooting the show. And uh, it's like, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It'd be nice to just relax. Like, and you know, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, the, you know, the truck from the next job is literally backing up to the camera truck so I can wheel my gear from this truck to that truck because I start on Monday on something else. And he was just floored by the idea that, like, man, how could you not take a break? Like, there's 150 of us here. Like, there's only six of you guys who are taking a break. The rest of us have other jobs that start in a, you know, two days or a week or something like that. Like, this 15 hour a day schedule, five days a week is our life, not just, you know, not just like a chunk of our year, which, you know, is a hard concept to wrap your head around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Can you, as briefly as you can, talk to us about um, the pay range for somebody in your role? Yeah, the current union scale rate for a digital imaging technician is, I believe it's 76.15 an hour. And that is for a guaranteed eight hours. So you work 10 minutes, you still get paid uh, for eight. And then um, beyond that, there are meal penalties, after six hours, you, they have to break you for lunch. Um, and those meal penalties are terrible for camera, but they're like eight bucks an hour or, so, or eight bucks every 30 minutes indefinitely. And then you also have penalties for dinner, which I think are slightly higher. I could be wrong in that. And those also go on indefinitely. And then, uh, yeah. And then after eight hours, you get time and a half till 12. And after 12, you get double time until 14 and then 14 it gets a little murky uh because depending on the contract and stuff uh sometimes you're into double time and a half sometimes you're into triple time if you're in a really amazing job you're in uh golden time which is like it's triple time but you don't have to get to the end of every hour so it can add up if you do a, a, a terrible enough job <laughs> <laughs> you do a job that doesn't like it doesn't like to wrap Woo. Amount of money. <laughs> so go out there and do your worst. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Matt, what do you think, um, what do you think needs to change in this industry? I, I mean, for me, the biggest thing that I feel like drives kind of everything is the race to the bottom line, if you will. That kind of, it dictates your schedule. It dictates the hours you do each day. It kind of dictates everything. 
you know, and none of the things that it does are good things. Um, Cause everybody wants to hit some magic number. Uh, and that makes it so you, you know, you're trying to do a 50 day shoot in 35 days. You're trying to do, you know, a 12 hour shoot day in 10 hours. And so everything's a little bit worse. Everything's a little bit rushed. You know, it's how people get hurt. It's how people fall asleep at the wheel. You know, um, if you're trying to do, you know, a 50 day shoot in 35 days, every day it's going to be 15 hours not counting however long it takes you to get there and however long it takes you to get back. And, you know, for lots of people that could equal a 16, 17 hour day every day for however long that job is. Yeah, I think everything suffers. People suffer, morale suffers, quality of the work suffers. Your personal health. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget well, it. Yeah, I look pretty great for being slip deprived for 12 years. <laughs> But if I sit in this chair and stop talking, I will instantaneously fall asleep. <laughs> this yeah. is the least favorite question of everybody's. Um, so get ready, Matt. Um, oh boy. It's not bad. It's just hard. So what directors or films have inspired you or influenced your work? Uh, do you have a favorite film? My favorite film is Back to the Future. I don't know. It used to get me like merciless eye rolls in film school. Uh, cause every, you know, everybody's supposed to have like a really, you know, artsy and interesting thing. You're supposed to say Fellini or Kubrick. And, you know, I guess I grew up in the eighties. We listened to Billy Joel and Rod Stewart and we watched pop culture movies. And, uh, and those were the ones that, you know, I'd still love the, you know, the gremlins and the goonies and, you know, back to the future and, um, weirdly not star Wars, uh, <laughs> But yeah, but Back to the Future was my trilogy, damn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but those were, you know, those were the movies we watched on Fridays on movie night, you know, and those are kind of the movies we watch at my house with my kids on movie night now. Nice. You know, like, Love that. The Goonies yeah. is one of my favorites. I mean, oh the, sound, the soundtrack, the music is just chilling to my, my soul. My son loved it, and I did not realize how often they casually curse. <laughs> Not oh, like yeah. bad, but they say shit and they say damn and you're just like, okay. Oh. I glanced past him, uh, which it did. And uh, we we got we got slammed with the, he really liked the Hamilton soundtrack and he learned a whole bunch of things. He should have learned listening to that soundtrack, which is amazing. Thanks, Lin-Manuel. <laughs> you know, he... <laughs> For years, like all those words just like slid right past him. And then one day he just turned around and like was like, hey, what does this mean? Oh, well, um, that word is the most versatile word in the English language. And I will not explain any more than that. <laughs> oh my. Um, oh. Matt, we could talk to you forever. Thank you so much for being here and providing such insight into your world for our listeners. It means a great deal to us to just uncover these roles that people just don't know about. And, you know, a young woman in school would never know that she could be a DIT until now. So. Yeah. And I will say everybody seems to think that like DITing is daunting and it can be because there's like a lot of math and stuff to it, but you know, there's no, test to DIT. You know, if you can find gear, 
whether you buy it or you, you know, find somebody who has extra, you know, you can read a book and do it, and, you know, fake it till you make it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and you'll eventually get caught if you, if you don't pick it up quick enough. But, uh, but I mean, for the most part, it's, you know, it's a very accessible path. Um, Excellent. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, I hope I, uh, I hope I answered something with some version of information. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did better than that. Thank yes. you so much, Matt. <laughs> and thanks so much to our listeners. This is 101, a podcast.